Since 1968, Locust Magazine has been providing science fiction and fantasy fans with the most comprehensive industry coverage around. Every month, you'll find news covering publishers, conferences, and awards from around the globe, reviews for books and short stories from notable critics, insightful interviews with top authors, as well as up-and-coming talent, extensive listings of books and magazines published in the U.S. and the U.K., bestseller lists, promotions, commentary, color photos, and more. And now Locust can be delivered to your inbox every month. Just log on to locustmag.com today to begin your 6, 12, or 24-month subscription, available as digital download, print, or both. If you love speculative fiction, be it fantasy, science fiction, or horror, Locust Magazine is the publication to keep you up to speed on the latest industry news each and every month. Hugo award-winning coverage, unlike any other magazine around. So what are you waiting for? Visit locustmag.com. That's locustmag.com. And subscribe today. Hi, this is Brian Stavely, the author of the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne trilogy, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. To the Grim Tidings podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Here we are, Philip. We're doing a custom introduction for our interview that we have here. Uh, today it is the one and only Mr. Brian Staveley, the author of the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne trilogy. And we wanted to do a special introduction today because it's really exciting, Philip. Tor, the good folks at Tor, have uh, set up a promotion giveaway for the episode today. So we are giving away not one, but two entire trilogies of the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne. So two people are, are getting hooked up from the Grim Tidings podcast, courtesy of Tor. So that's pretty exciting, right, Philip? Yeah, it's uh, really generous of them to uh, loan us, not loan us, give, <laughs> give us right. some books to give away. So we're pretty excited to give away uh, uh, two trilogies and people can get in on that awesome unhewn throne action definitely so uh it's called the nothing rhymes with stavely giveaway because <laughs> uh, we tried to come up with a catchy promotional name for this thing and we found out that nothing actually rhymes with brian stavely so what you have to do is uh this is open to north america only you can email us it's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com that's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com is our email address send us an email with your name and address you have to be 18 or over in north america only in the subject line write nothing rhymes with stavely and in the body, give us your name and address. And what we'll do is I'll give you till the end of the month to enter to win that contest. And we will do a random drawing and select two lucky winners to receive paperback copies of the first two books and then hardcover for, for book three. So very exciting. Chronicle of the Unhung Throne trilogy getting given away to two people. So uh, very cool. And thanks again to Tor for hooking that up. We do appreciate them. And they are the premier science fiction and fantasy imprint in America and across the globe. So be sure to head, head over to Tor.com if you want to find out more from the good folks at Tor. Other news in the Grim Tidings podcast realm. We have a promotion coming up with Locus Magazine. That's right. The premier trade magazine of science fiction and fantasy. We are partnering with them, and we're going to be giving away five six-month digital subscriptions to the magazine. You can head over to locusmag.com if you want to learn more, but we have some cool shit coming up over the next few weeks. So stay tuned to the show. Be sure you subscribe to it on iTunes, just like me and Philip have already. And then coming up this month, we're going to be giving away five digital subscriptions to Locust Magazine. So it's very cool, Philip. I'm very excited about this, this partnership because I love Locust Magazine. It's got lots of cool stuff. 
Yeah, anyone that's interested in fantasy and science fiction should definitely pick up Locust Magazine because it's chock full of the, the coolest stuff that's happening in the genre at the moment. So get in on it. Get in on that uh, action. I li- Absolutely. I like, if saying, if you're a fan I like saying action today. <laughs> get in on that action. Yeah, if you're a fan of our show, if you like science fiction and fantasy and author interviews and publishing discussion, man, Locust is where it's at. And that's locustmag.com. Be sure you check that out. So uh, plenty of cool stuff coming up. Interviews coming your way. Jeff Salyard's interview coming up next week. He's the author of the Blood Sounders Arc Trilogy. We have an indie authors panel coming up as well, featuring multiple indie authors talking about indie publishing. So if you're a self-publisher or you thought about maybe getting into that, that will be an episode that you definitely want to scope out. And another interview that we have coming up, very cool, is an interview with Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall, the author of A Crown for Cold Silver and A Blade for Black Steel. So that'll be a super cool interview. I'm actually reading A Crown for Cold Silver now, and it's one of uh, my favorite books I've read recently. Uh, it's definitely some good fantasy uh, shit. Also, if you don't, if you aren't aware, uh, Jesse Bullington is Alex Marshall, and they're the same person, so it's like magic. But uh, he wrote a couple of other books before, a few other books before, uh, The Sad Tale of the Brothers Grossbart, The Enterprise of Death, and The Folly of the World. Uh, If you're into dark fiction, I highly recommend these books as well. Uh, you uh, You should go do that right now, actually. Do it right now. Go do it right now. And also, in October, we have all horror related episodes all month long during the month of October. We call it October. So hashtag October is what what we're using. Just rolls off the tongue, Phil. I came up with that. Uh, Yeah, October. Uh, But we're going to have some really cool horror-related guests all month long, including, dude, Ellen Datlow, who's the premier editor of all science fiction and fantasy dumb all over the place, but she's coming on the show. We got uh, Paul Tremblay, author of A Head Full of Ghosts, which was 2015's horror novel of the year, pretty much. Uh, we've got some indie authors coming on as well. A good mix of variety for your October, bringing you horror all month long. It's very exciting. Uh, so lots of cool things coming up, Philip. Um, and then we're going to crown it off of we got a web domain. We have the the grimtidingspodcast.com is, a, is, now, is now a thing. Uh, it is it is under construction, and uh, <laughs> we're planning to do several things with it. We're hoping to uh, blog regularly, uh, offer guest posts yes. for other authors. We're going to do lots of fun stuff with the website. So uh, once it's fully operational, then we will be uh, shooting uh, Death Star beams into outer space. Yes. Until then, you can always drop by our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings podcast. Or you can always uh, assail us on Twitter and send us threatening messages there. Uh, it's at Grim Dark Fiction is our handle. So be sure to join the cult over there. But uh, Philip, I'm glad we had a chance to kind of update folks on all the awesome sauce things that we have going on here on the show. So be sure to enter the contest. Check out locustmag.com. Cool guests coming up. And we hope that you enjoy this interview with Mr big-time fantasy author Brian Stavely right here. (laughs) 
Our guest today is the author of the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne series, including The Emperor's Blades, The Providence of Fire, The Last Mortal Bond, and the forthcoming standalone novel, Skull Sworn. After teaching literature, philosophy, history, and religion for more than a decade, he turned his attention to writing fantasy. He now lives in Vermont, where he splits his time between writing, parenting, husbanding, splitting wood, playing the banjo, skiing, and adventuring. Published by Tor Books and online at bstavely.wordpress.com, the Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Mr. Brian Stavely to the show. Brian, thanks for having me. <laughs> How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. It's thanks great for to having me on. It's kick-ass. Whenever we mentioned, hey, Brian Stavely is coming on the show, pretty much everybody was saying, O-M-F-G, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's awesome. You should read his books ASAP. So everybody's really jazzed to have you on the show today. So it's And great. excited about acronyms as well. O-M-G and ASAP. <laughs> the same sentence. That, that knows, you know you're doing something right. You can get an OMG and an ASAP. <laughs> OMFG. OMFG. OMFG even better. <laughs> so, big deal. You are the author of the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne series. The trilogy is out. Pretty much kicking ass. You won a Stabby Award. You won a Gamel Morningstar Award for the Emperor's Blades for that first installment. Pretty much a resounding, this series kicks ass, is what I've seen from the SFF community. So we're delighted to have you on the show. We do have a 30-second geek out planned for the uh, conclusion of the program today that folks might want to stick around for that. So that should be uh, the typical fun and excitement that we have with our 30-second geek out rounds. So should be exciting to have Brian Stavely do that. We can just start off, I suppose we'll, we'll talk about your books. I suppose that's uh, probably a good place. If we must. If we must. <laughs> A good place to start. So you are the author of The Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne. Tell us a bit about that series and why you think readers might want to check that out. Um, it follows three adult children of a murdered emperor, a monk, a special forces soldier, and a politician. They've all had very different training, and they've been raised separately uh, for most of their lives. Um, and the, the first book picks up right when the emperor has been killed. And so it falls to these three children to try and figure out who killed him and why and to stay alive themselves Um as they do that. And um, one of the things that was interesting to me was not just uh, having three people team up to solve the mystery, but having the three people who are teaming up really profoundly distrust each other. Uh, they're coming from very different backgrounds, as I suggested. Near the beginning, I think they all think, OK, we'll, we'll find each other. We'll get together and we'll get the bad guys. But a big challenge for all of them is figuring out just who the bad guys are and they don't necessarily agree about how to solve the problem. So um, the struggle is as much between them uh, as it is between them and the force uh, that kind of exists behind this whole conspiracy. So you have uh, so you have several point of views that feature each of the children. Mm -hmm. um, now that the series is complete, how do you feel the reader response has been to their uh, the changes that the children have experienced as the series advanced? Well, I think one of the worries when you have a, a few or a couple different point of view characters is that there will be one that the readers love and one that the readers hate. You know, I think of Sansa Stark in the first um, Game of Thrones books. I know every time I got to one of her chapters, I just wanted to skip past it. And I think that that response was not atypical of a lot of readers. And, of course, every time I got to a Tyrion chapter or an Arya chapter, I wanted to, to race through it. So I was concerned that maybe the same thing would happen with these books. And I've been pleased to find out that there doesn't seem to be a consensus favorite character. Um, in the first book, it seemed like the majority of readers really liked Valen. He's the special forces soldier. But by the third book, it seemed as though maybe people liked Gwenna the most. And in the middle, it seemed like maybe it was Adair. 
And of course, within each book, there's there's immense variation. Um, I just got, I think, three emails in in an hour uh, the other day, or <clears throat> two on Facebook, I guess, messages. And um, there are three different people saying, "Hey, we loved Adair in the last book," which was really refreshing because for a few days before that, I'd been getting emails that said we hated Adair in the last book. Um, <laughs> And that makes me happy that, that there's that conflict because, you know, you want characters to be like people. Uh, you don't want one to be clearly the best and another to be clearly the worst, but they have different qualities and different qualities resonate with different readers. So I've been excited about that variation in response to the different characters. So the series concluded with the with book three, The Last Mortal Bond. Did that kind of close out the, the story of those three characters? For some of them, some of them are dead at the end of it, but not all of them. Um, and I'm definitely going to return to those that are still alive uh, probably in three or four years. I have a, a plan to write another trilogy in this world with a lot of the same characters, but when they're about 15 years older. So the, the central characters of this book, of this trilogy, range between, you know, 19 and 30, mostly. There are a couple older characters, and I'd be interested to check back in with them, in, you know, when they're in their 30s and 40s. So let's talk a little bit about the... Uh uh, the giant ass birds. I yeah. want to talk about the giant ass birds. <laughs> so when I first saw the cover, uh, one of the things that stood out to me uh, for Vampire's Blades was uh, the giant ass bird standing in the background. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'm curious if when you were designing these birds, did you actually do research or did you just kind of say, fuck it, I want to have giant hawks in my story? And more more, I don't, I don't want to. more of the fuck it approach. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I did enough research to realize that it, they're basically impossible. Uh, mm. It just don't work. And I said, well, that's too bad. They're going in anyway. Uh, <laughs> in, in part because giant ass birds are cool, but in part because they're a solution to a technical problem that I think bedevils all writers of epic fantasy, which is the problem of fast travel around a world. You know, it's delightful to have people trudging somewhere and a lot of there's a lot of trudging in a lot of fantasy novels, you know, from Lord of the Rings right on down. Mm-hmm. But but sometimes you need to get people from point A to point B, um, especially in later volumes when the reader starts to get tired of trudging and you need a way to get them there. So, you know, Robert Jordan has has his solutions. And, um, you know, every writer basically has to grapple with this somehow. Um, and the birds were at least initially as much a technical uh, a solution to a technical problem as they were something that I wanted to write about in their own right. Although, of course, like any technical solution, once you start solving it, you, you become enamored of the story elements. And now I can't imagine writing the story without the birds, which are called Ketrol and um, and, and the soldiers who ride them that, that uh, you know, I could write 12 volumes about the history of the Ketrol at this point. That could be interesting. uh series in itself yeah, just, yeah. Uh, about the Ketrol. well you know one of the one of the characters that readers have really connected with over the first trilogy is the flea who is a a veteran Ketrol warrior he's in his early 50s in the series and um he's sort of just this laconic badass and his wing is the best wing on the islands and um people have been been really Every day or every couple of days, I get an email from somebody saying, "Can we get a story about the flea?" So there's a there's a novel for him coming at some point here. Maybe, maybe the next book, maybe the book after the next book, but it's on its way. You have a lot of fiction planned for for this universe. So your your next forthcoming novel is actually a standalone called Skull Sworn. Yeah. So another character that people gravitated to, who I also really like, is a woman named Peer. She's also in her I think late 40s or early 50s. I forget. And um, 
she is a priestess of the god of death. She's an assassin, but, you know, a, a religious, high-minded assassin. And a lot of folks wanted to hear more about her story, in particular her backstory, how she became who she is. And so Skullsworn is a single POV novel, first person that follows Pierre. It's a prequel that takes place about, oh, 20 years before the trilogy. Did you find that it was difficult trying to write from a first-person point of view after writing from third-person for so long? It, it is such an interesting challenge. Yeah, the, the, the original trilogy is third-person limited, so each uh, chapter you're just in the head of one character. Writing first-person, it's really just a question of voice, and it took me ages and ages to find Pierre's voice. I mean, I knew what she sounded like when she was 48, I knew what it sounded like when she was talking to other people, but that internal monologue for her was what took me a long time to hammer down. Um, I, I would go too far one way and she'd sound too flippant and blase about everything. I go too far the other way and she'd sound too sort of neurotic and concerned about everything. And finding that balance, I would say, was probably the hardest thing about the book. The plot elements fell pretty readily into place, but when you're writing in first person, the plot elements, you know, they're... They're only half the story. The other half is, is getting that voice down. So, yeah, that was hard. Your path to publication has been um, interesting and not not usually the norm. You you don't have a lot of trunk novels in your trunk. No, no uh, I don't really have any. Uh, <laughs> Do you have a trunk? <laughs> <laughs> no, no trunks, no novels. <laughs> the, the closest thing I have is that um, is an early draft of The Emperor's Blades, which was called something different then. And there was another point of view character. And I'd written a whole novel length, about 100,000 words story for her. And eventually she wasn't fitting with the, the direction the story was taking. So I had to lift her out entirely. And so that... It's not really polished enough to stand on its own, but that's the closest thing I have. Um, and that was really just kind of a, an abortive draft from the first novel. Was that you making that cut, or did the publisher make that cut, or what were no, you decided? That was well before I even got an agent. I worked on the first book for about seven years before I shopped it around for agents. And I thought initially that there would be two point-of-view characters. The, the character who becomes Caden, who is the heir to the throne of this massive empire. And I wanted to have this young woman, Rhea, who hates the Empire. She's on the outside of the Empire um, and is working to bring it down. And I wanted to go alternate between the two of them. But I realized that the story inside of the Empire was growing so large that I didn't even have the space for the POV outside the Empire. And so I cut her and then added Caden's siblings. So the book did not originally start out as a, as a story of siblings, but as a story of these two strangers who were sort of sworn enemies, and it, it just didn't evolve that way. Although I still imagine Rhea in this world. I, don't, I didn't cut her out of the world in my mind. She's still out there uh, in this other place, and I, I would consider writing about her every time I start a new book. I might write about her the next book or the one after that. So she's still there. I'll probably have to scrap everything I've written about her because the world has changed so much, but I'd like to return to her at some point. Seven years is a long commitment to the story of the Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne. You must have really believed that this story would be the story that propel you forward. I had no idea. I was so clueless. I just knew that, uh, you know, I wrote, I was, I really enjoyed teaching. I taught high school for a long time and I only worked, with one exception, I only worked on the book in the summers. I just couldn't find the mental space between grading papers and preparing lessons and stuff to work on it during the school year. So most of that time was really only the three month summer chunks. Um, the exception was that I took a year off in there and, um, I'd saved up and, moved to East and Southeast Asia, where I lived for the better part of a year. And then I was I was writing full time. I was writing every day. I also wrote poetry for a long time. That's what I did my undergrad and grad degrees in. 
Um, but I was aware that I was not going to make a living writing poetry. And I was also aware that I loved fantasy and I love fiction in general. And I wanted to try writing a novel, mainly for my own sake. I mean, I thought it would be thrilling if it got published. But I just wanted to see what it was like. Uh, I had written before that a musical. Um, I didn't write the music, but I wrote the book and the lyrics. And that never went anywhere. And I didn't care. But I just I thought, oh, a musical, that would be an interesting project. Um, so I wrote a musical version of the Odyssey. And then I thought, oh, a novel, that would be an interesting project. So I, I sort of just kind of goofed around with it for a couple of years. And I thought, I'm never going to finish a novel just goofing around. It's not like a poem. So if I really want to do it, I better take a year off. And so I did. But no, I didn't. Early on, I didn't have any real vision of where it would go. I had no sense of the market. I ended up writing a book that was like twice as long as it should have been. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was very unsophisticated. I see people now when I go to conventions who obviously have a plan, like a three-year plan or a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. It involves you know, getting stories in these publications and meeting these people and making connection with this editor. And I just think, damn, I wish I had been a little bit more deliberate. They're doing it smart. I did not do it the smart way. <laughs> Do you think when you went abroad uh, to live, uh, we actually talked about this. This is a little secret. Long time ago, I don't remember how long ago, but we had kind of chatted on Google Plus about yeah, yeah. you living in Mongolia and then me living in Japan and how Japan kind of affect, affects my way of thinking about the world differently. Did you find that living in another country affected your writing at all? Did it did it help your writing or did it make you think about the world in a different way when, when you're writing your own world? I think travel can't help but jar you out of your patterns of thought, which is always good. Even with things as basic as writing a description of a castle, let's say, if all your ideas of castles come from, you know, looking at picture books of Europe or something, you're going to write a different kind of castle than if you have some experience of different sorts of fortresses. And so when I was over there, I would look at monasteries and old fortresses and stuff. And so that was helpful on a really practical level. But I also think that being abroad... <laughs> was invaluable because there really wasn't anything else for me to do but write. I couldn't speak the language in most of the places I was, and I didn't know anyone, and I sort of cultivated that anonymity. And so I'd sort of get up in the morning and write for a while and then go for a run and then write for a while and then think, well, maybe I'll take a break from writing, but there wasn't much to do. So <laughs> drink a beer and then write for a while, you know, maybe go for another run. So it, every time I would have been distracted back in the States, um, I, there was nothing to distract me, really. They're just long runs, uh, basically through the jungle, um, when I was in, especially when I was in Cambodia and Laos. And other than that, it was just writing. So, as I said, I don't know if I ever would have finished the book if I had been working on it just on vacations, um, back in the U.S. I have endless admiration for people who are able to do that. I don't know that I could have. You said that you thought that you might ha not have done it the smart way. Maybe your approach wasn't as calculated as others are. Do you think there were like some mistakes along the way that you made or do you just feel that? You oh, absolutely. So, I mean, when I was writing The Emperor's Blades, the thought process that went into it was, well, what are some books I like? I like the first Game of Thrones novel. Um, how long is that? OK, that's about I forget what it is, about 250,000 words. So I should write a book that's about 250,000 words. And that was the whole thought process. There was no I didn't talk to any agents. I didn't read any blogs. I didn't look at anything from editors. So I wrote a book that was about 250,000 words. And I thought, OK, great. Now I, I will start researching step two. And step two, as it turned out, involved writing a book that was about half that length. And so um, that was one of the reasons that I took out uh, Rhea, because if I was going to trim the book down, there was just no space for her. And so. That was just one example of a lot of labor and heartache that probably could have been avoided if I'd spent literally 15 minutes 
Googling before deciding to make the book. But as I said, at the beginning, I wasn't thinking, oh, this will be my new career. I'll go, I'll write a book and then do this full time. I was just thinking I'd like to write a book and I, I wanted to write the best book I could. And so I was looking at books that I really admired and those tended to run really long. So I wrote a book that was pretty long and uh, then learned that no, no agent wants to see a long book from a no name writer. So there hence ensued years of revisions. But then you know, those revisions paid off because you you have won uh, two awards. One is the uh, David Gamel Morningstar Award for uh, the Emperor's Blades, which is uh, a I wanted looking award, by the way. I don't know if people have seen the picture of it, but it's this sculpture of a shirtless warrior with a top knot, dual wielding <laughs> these sort of katanas. Um, it sits right right up on the liquor shelf, kind of peeking out from behind our bottles of scotch up there. That's, I love it. Well, I was going to ask you, have you have you bashed anything with it at all? Have you, like, smashed nuts with it? Or? Well, it's not actually a Morningstar. I, I, I sort of wondered, oh, because, you know, the Legend Award is an axe. And I thought, oh, maybe it's a Morningstar, maybe it's a weapon. <laughs> but it's not. It's the statue of a guy. Um, what I, The Stabby, on the other hand, is a is a dagger. Uh, that's, that's an award from Reddit. And um, that is very practical. You can bash all kinds of things with that. <laughs> As, as my four-year-old son has discovered, <laughs> my great chagrin. You use it as a letter opener or anything? Or? He likes to stab it into, we live in a post and beam sort of old house, and he likes to stab it into one of the beams. Uh, <laughs> it's outstanding parenting. I'm a very good parent. Yeah, it, once he found out that it was in the house, you know, he just badgers me. Can I use it? Can I use it? And so, you know, sometimes I say, yeah. <laughs> You can use it for a couple seconds. And then when he looks close to hurting himself or me or another small child, I take it away. But it comes down at least once a week. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think, uh, I think all awards should be shaped like practical uh, things we can use in oh, everyday absolutely. life. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, like I don't an, think that the, that the uh, Morningstar Award, though, that guy glowering down from behind the scotch, you know, if an interloper came to my house and took down a bottle of scotch, you know, might give him a start and he might put the bottle back. Well, I don't know. Maybe it does serve a purpose. Like, oh, shit. Guardian that of guy. the <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah, it's, that's, that's my hope, at least. So picking up a Stabby um, and a Gamel Award, that must have been pretty satisfying. Overall, how, how satisfied are you with how the series has been re- received so far by your readers? Oh, I'm elated. Uh, I mean, as I said, I didn't I didn't have great expectations when I started out with it, and it, it's – it's just thrilling every time someone gets in touch with me to say, you bastard, I was up until four in the morning finishing your book last night. And now I'm at work exhausted because uh, I know that feeling. I, You know, last night I was up way later than I should have been finishing Red Country, a Joe Abercrombie novel. Uh, and I know that feeling and it's given me such delight in my own life to have a book that I can just get lost in. And the fact that there are people out there who are having that experience with this trilogy it just, you know, puts a smile on my face every time I hear about it. So it's it's great. It's been, yeah, just awesome. And we actually talked to um, uh, Nicole Cushing, uh, who won the Bram Stoker Award mm-hmm. not too long ago, about the effect of winning awards. So now that you've won some awards, have you noticed any difference in how the industry treats you, or do you get more offers to write various things? I am probably the least connected person in the industry. I mean, I, I live in a town with one paved road up in the hills of Vermont, and I don't come down often. Um, so I don't know. That's another way in which I think I'm, I'm pretty unsophisticated. So I don't really know. I don't go to a lot of conventions. I don't go to a ton of conferences. I just kind of hope that the books keep selling and people keep enjoying them. 
But uh, yeah, in terms of how the industry, quote unquote, treats me or receives the books, I, I don't know. Somebody else would probably know better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> do you just really like being on your mountain or are cons just not uh, your cup? Or Oh, well, I like cons, but I have a four year old um, and I have elderly parents. And so a lot of my time right now is taken up just with family trying to be um, uh, right now. I'm down um, down at the seacoast where my parents live. I try and bring my son down so he can spend time uh, with his grandparents. And so, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff right now on my plate. And of course, writing the books takes its own time. And so I always have a blast when I get out and get to meet other writers and fans and editors and just people in the community. But I find that there's not, I don't have as much time to do that as I'd like. So the, the next project I wanted to talk about a little bit, um, is this the Predator meets 12th night? <laughs> it is. Book? It is. Yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah. you talked about music before that you said music is involved significantly in, in this story. Yeah. So the the main character, again, is Pierre. She's a priestess of the god of death. And um, he's not just the god of death, like a lot of the gods in various pantheons in the real world. You know, they, they have multiple jobs, right? They don't just preside over one limited domain. And um, another thing that he's the god of is music. And the connection uh, in the books between death and music is that like human life, music is is uh, it's temporary. It's transient. You can't if you pause music, if you try and hold on to it, the music stops. Right. Um, the whole point of music is that it exists in its passage and ultimately in its own destruction. Um, and that's the same uh, point of view that these these skull sworn, the priests and priestesses of the God of death take about human life. And so in addition to being excellent at killing people in in hundreds of ways, uh, most of the devotees of the God of Death are also real music aficionados and peers included in that. And so she notices since the book is told from her perspective, she's always noticing music in the book and thinking about her own life and her trials in terms of the music that she's hearing or music pieces of music that she knows and um that's been really fun. You know, it's everything from you know there's a scene where um sort of a fight in the middle of a big choral mass um, that's happening back in the pews. And then sometimes you just hear, you know, a fisherman singing these little simple songs while he's hauling in his nets. But I've tried to weave that into the structure of not just the story, but of Piers' experience of her own story. So you're you're essentially making bards really cool <laughs> because no, no one ever wants to pick the bard in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Just very, very deadly bards. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, they're, they all, one of the priests that she's with, this older priest named Castle, he has a flute with him that he's kind of always playing. But the flute is also his weapon, um, and so he's he often kills people with it, too, um, and then sort of slicks the blood off the wood and keeps playing. And so, yeah, that's been a fun marriage there. One of the things I have to do, one of the challenges of the book is to humanize the Skull Sworn because there's a lot of assassins in fantasy. And I like assassin fantasy, but one of the things I've noticed in assassin fantasy is that if you're going to be asked as a reader to sympathize with the assassin, suddenly the types of jobs that the assassin does become less despicable. You know, the assassin suddenly has standards and won't kill this person or that person or only kills bad people. And I really wanted my Skull Sworn to kill all kinds of people, innocent people, good people. Um, and that's a big, that's a, that's a heavy lift for a reader to sympathize with a character that's going to walk into, you know, a house and just murder somebody who's sitting there and walk out. And so 
I have to find ways to show that these aren't just bloodthirsty people who delight in the suffering of others. In fact, the Skullsworn hates suffering. That's one of the reasons that they worship the god of death, because he brings an end to all suffering. And so I have to find ways to humanize them, and music was one of those ways. Fascinating. It's been, it's been tricky. It's been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so readers can actually expect a short story from you before that novel comes out, because the uh, Evil is a Matter of Perspective a Grimdark Magazine Kickstarter is just about to wrap up, and you are penning a short story for that anthology. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, when I saw that, um, when I got the email asking if I wanted to be part of it, I thought, absolutely, because that's one of the things, you know, coming back to the Skullsworn issue, that's one of the things that really interests me in fantasy is getting beyond the conception of one ultimate evil uh, character. And I mean, obviously, a lot of writers are doing this now, but trying to find out the roots of evil in sort of the more prosaic and everyday decisions that women and men make as they kind of go through the world. And so the story I'm working on now, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to talk about who it is, but don't expect um you know, a Sauron-like villain lurking in the background, sort of counting uh, his orcs. What I'm much more interested in is a person who's trying to do good and is sort of fumbling into evil as a result. That will lead us to our contractually obligated question for the Grim Tidings podcast. We usually ask authors their their thoughts on the grimdark subgenre. We've got uh, various thoughts. We've had Joe Abercrombie and Steven Erickson, etc. cetera, uh, wax eloquent on their thoughts on the subgenre. Any thoughts for you, Brian Stavely, on uh, grimdark and the state of the subgenre? Well, again, you're asking the least connected person in fan <laughs> uh, about, about a, the state of the union. But I, I don't love titles or, or sort of categories because they seem to do one of two things. If you if you approach a category, whether it's a movie, well, take movies, for instance. I like romantic comedies, um, but there's this genre out there now where you look at the preview of the movie and it looks like it's going to be funny and lighthearted and it's a romantic comedy. And then you start watching it. And it's like one character is dying of cancer and the other one, you know, is a murderer and it's just depressing. And you saw all the jokes in the preview. And I always feel let down, not because it's a bad movie, but because I wanted a lighthearted romantic comedy where the people get married at the end. And, <laughs> and so I think once you put a label on something, you can only have two responses as a reader or as a viewer. One is, yeah, that was what I expected, which is a little disappointing. And one is, that's not what I wanted, which is also a little disappointing. Um, and so... You know, as I just mentioned, I just finished Abercrombie's book uh, last night. And early on, I, he, I love him. He's one of my favorite fantasy writers. Early on, I sort of thought, oh, every character I like is going to die in, in an Abercrombie book and probably die horrifically. And, and that got to be no fun. Um, and his later books are much more complex, complex, I think, much more complicated. And um, they might be less grim dark, but they're more unpredictable. And I like that. So. I don't know whether I would put the label grimdark on my books or really any other books. Some good people die. Some bad people live. Some good people live. Some bad people die. I hope there are moments of levity and light uh, and there are sort of moments of tragedy. I think uh, what I like out of a book is that it sort of mirrors the complexity of the world. A few other authors we, we talked to said if it if it sells more books, then fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> so yeah. if people want to call me grimdark and it makes them happy to sell book to sell more books, then, then yeah, well, that's yeah. something to that. I mean, when I first saw the cover of The Emperor's Blades, I love the artwork, the, the U.S. edition. I love Richard Anderson's artwork. But I thought, well, Caden doesn't look exactly the way I picture him. I picture him looking a little bit sort of thinner and monkish. And the Caden on the cover of The Emperor's Blades, that's pretty badass. Um, but I was talking to my editor and he's like, you want to sell books or you want to have a thin monkish character? 
there's something to that. Um, and actually, it, it's interesting the way that um, my conception of Caden has sort of grown, and, and of all the characters actually, has sort of grown into Anderson's cover art in a way, because I have it in the back of my head. Um, and that's been really fun. I love his cover for Skullsworn, actually. That is dead on. And that's exactly how I pictured Pierre right from the get-go. So, I don't know. I think the two of us are sort of evolving towards each other over the course of this <laughs> collaboration, which is fun. Well, Phil is a thin, monkish character. So, well, we well, um, get him to model uh, the books here. I'm, ne- I'm actually neither. I'm neither thin nor uh, monkish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bulbous and... Uh... Belligerent? <laughs> Belligerent, yeah. Bulbous and belligerent, yes. That's a good, uh, that's a good cover blurb right there. <laughs> Bulbous and belligerent. So I guess we can uh, transition now into the um, the most famous part of the Grim Tidings podcast, the thirty second geek out, where we uh, run a variety of topics through you. You have thirty seconds to answer. After thirty seconds, we will stop you, and you will have no other time. You will have to stop, and we will continue on to the next topic. Okay. okay some- some people don't really like this. Uh, <laughs> I think they just I think they just go along with it. They're like, okay. But then when we go, bang, then they're like, what the f- uh, what happened? Okay. Yeah. That it's only rude. 30 seconds. I mean, you can deal with anything for 30 seconds. So I, I, I'm unprepared, I guess. It's jarring. So just, okay. just be prepared. Okay. All right. So 30-second geek out with Brian Scott Stavely. Topic number one. Philip? Topic number one. Hold on. Let me get my yeah. – uh, hold on. Sorry, I gotta get the stopwatch. Am I supposed to go 30 seconds on topic number one? No, no, sorry. We're, we're gonna give you a specific topic here. I just have to get my timer out to make sure that you're cut off effectively. But I should talk about it for 30 seconds. Yes, you should talk about the, the actual topic that we give you here for 30 seconds. I just have Topic number one. Which, no, you'll, we'll have a a specific topic here. Okay. okay. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) If I can make it any more confusing, I will. You're confusing it, right? So we have we have an announced topic number one. I am now going to announce, <laughs> announce topic number one. Prepared. Topic number one is big ass birds. Thirty seconds. Well, one of the things about big ass birds is that the physics don't work at all, um, and so you have to just ignore that. But it doesn't mean that they're not animals. And so one of the things that's been fun with writing these books is that I'm in touch with vets. And whenever I screw something up with the anatomy of the birds, the vets get in touch with me and they say, hey, that's not right. What you have there is a patagial tear, not a ligament, whatever. And that's been sort of fun because I've been learning about birds on the fly, trying to figure out, okay, how does the wing function? How do they do this? There you go. How was that? (laughs) You said birds on the fly. That was good. (laughs) Puns much. Nice. Yeah, perfect. And that's it. That's, That's all. That's the whole thing. Nice. Sweet. Okay, topic number two. You have a uh, short story out called The Log Goblin. Please uh, give us 30 seconds of ranting about goblins. Go. Um, well, the Log Goblin uh, steals wood, which is really frustrating when you're relying on wood for your heat, which we do in Vermont. You know, you spend a lot of time uh, cutting the wood and then splitting the wood and then stacking the wood outside and then moving the fucking wood inside to the <laughs> up on top of it and so when you spent that much time cutting splitting stacking wood um, and then you go down to pick it up to go put it in the fireplace uh, when it's not there you're pretty pissed off and whether it's your neighbor or a goblin um, time is up that's all you did Brian Stavely okay all right all right next time I love that I love that you said move the fucking wood <laughs> when you move the fucking wood oh yeah it's, like the- it's never ending <laughs> 
like something so peaceful like chopping wood. It just sounds peaceful. And I like chopping. I really like splitting wood. That's that's something I love. Uh, stacking it and restacking it, I do not love. It's understandable. Lift with your legs, not your back, Brian. That's true. Absolutely. What I'm planning to do is lift with my son once he's old enough. Just like I'll split it and he can haul it. But yeah. he's not very efficient right now. He's only four. So well, <laughs> start early. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Topic three will be adventure racing. Okay, adventure racing is a team sport in which you're given maps at the beginning and you have to find the spots on the map. You're racing against other teams. So it's basically like a multi-day scavenger hunt in which you stay up for sometimes 24 or 48 hours at a time. The fun thing about it is that if you make good decisions, you can beat teams that are actually a lot faster than you, which is not to say that we always make good decisions. Um, I've made a lot of very bad adventure racing decisions in my life, including sinking canoes and carrying bikes over mountains that didn't need to be... That sounds fun. It's awesome. It's a great sport. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it still, but I, I never even I never heard of an adventure racing before, <laughs> but I just got into hiking. So, but that sounds it's fun. very niche. Yeah, it gives. It's like a hiking with a point, hiking with a purpose. <laughs> and the thrill. I mean, even you know, I've done tons of these things, and the thrill whenever you find the flag that you're looking for, it never goes away. Um, you're like, there it is. Thank God, we don't have to look for that fucking thing anymore. All right, that's fine. <laughs> okay, topic number four: the Predator. Go. Um, well, so I love the movie Predator and uh, all of the spinoffs of it. And it's been uh, something of an inspiration for my most recent book, the one I'm finishing now, Skullsworn. Uh, I don't want to go too far into it, but I like the idea that there are these killing machines that also have a sense of nobility and honor. Now, it's one that nobody really understands, um, and you're probably not going to do very well if you trust it, but it's there, and that makes them more interesting to me than the aliens um, in this predator. <laughs> Damn it. Damn 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, next one. Uh, Rob really wants to, get, wants to get this one in. 30 seconds. <laughs> Playing the banjo. Go. Oh, yeah. So my, my dad played the banjo, and I have his uh, long neck Vega banjo, and I'm terrible at it. Uh, that does not stop me from getting it out to try and play it, because I have this. I grew up in a musical household. It didn't really rub off on me, but only in that I love music, and I want my son also to grow up in a musical place. Unfortunately, I can play about six songs, and so I just go through them over and over and over. Might be good for my son, might end my marriage. We'll see. I'm working on a seventh now just to try and diversify. And so uh, I just I just keep plinking. I took a lesson from a guy, but he died. So time is up. Keep on plinking. That should be a blurb, too. <laughs> yeah. Keep, keep on plinking. <laughs> With my voice, too. Keep no, on yeah. plinking. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the person who needs to say it. Who was the sickest banjo player ever? Probably Earl Scruggs, right? Isn't that what everybody says? That's usually the consensus. Yeah. I think. Do you yeah. sh- do you shred on the banjo? Because you shred on guitar. Is it the same thing on banjo, or is it a different I word? Shred- I, I think that's not the right word. No, I think plink. Plink is the right word. Plinking. <laughs> plink. Plink. Plink the fuck out of that banjo. Plink it. That's metal. Okay. Do we ha- do we have any more? Right? Um. Let's see here. Uh, let's do. Um. Yeah. One more. Um. Let's do the last topic with the thirty second gig out with Brian Stabley. Uh, you have 30 seconds to wax eloquent on philosophy and go. Do we lose him? Did you hang up? Oh, we actually lost him. Gosh. Yeah.
I thought it was like, this is the meaning of philosophy. <laughs> Has no meaning. <laughs> Try to... Oh, is it, is it trying to reconnect yeah. or something? I'm back. I'm back. Here I am. You thought that was intentional. We're fine. <laughs> yeah, we thought, we, we asked you about philosophy and then it went blank and I thought, oh, that's pretty deep. Fucking deep. <laughs> <laughs> He's just letting it ride. Uh, 30 seconds ride. So, no, I didn't, so I didn't hear the question. What's the last 30 seconds? Okay. So yeah, the last 30 second was to wax eloquent for only 30 seconds on the topic of philosophy. Well, what's amazing about philosophy is so much of it is so bad. Um, even the, the really famous Philosophers make all sorts of what seem like obvious mistakes, but the philosopher who I think doesn't make any mistakes is David Hume. And a thing I love about Hume is that he has his most trenchant observations kind of in the middle, like just in passing. He'll make these observations that other philosophers sort of fight about on and on and on. So David Hume is my pick. Bam. Bam. Birds, philosophy, banjo. That's how what we didn't roll. we cover? What didn't we cover? Exactly. <laughs> That's how we roll. Could you could you maybe leave us with uh, leave us with your own personal philosophy on writing? What is your personal belief about the purpose of writing and how it affects the world? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make that sound really deep, but I've kind of fucked it up. So. I think writing brings joy into people's lives. That's certainly what it's always done for me. Uh, I bet had my nose in a book since I was a kid, and it's hard for me to imagine my world without books, both as an escape, but also as a way to bring me to a sort of deeper level of involvement with the world. You know, I, I look at a lot of things that happen in my own life through the lens of the literature that I've read, and I think that my world would seem sort of more drab and monochromatic if I didn't have all these different perspectives helping me to filter and mediate my own experience of the world. So, yeah, I, I, I would sort of be lost without books, and I'm grateful whenever I feel like somebody is able to have the same experience with my books that I'm able to have with uh, the books of so many other authors that I admire. Awesome, Brian. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, so no con appearances coming up uh, in the in the short term for you? No, not this summer. Maybe something this fall. We'll see. Not this summer. This summer is pretty packed already. Just trying to put to bed this most recent book and then get started on the next project. And then where can folks track you down and stalk you on social media? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, I'm just at Brian Stavely, E-L-E-Y, the end of my name. But also I have a blog that I update occasionally, which is bstavely at wordpress.com. The series is The Chronicle of the Unhewn Throne. Folks can pick up the trilogy right now. you got the forthcoming standalone novel, Skullsworn, as well as that short story in The Evil is a Matter of Perspective Anthology. So plenty of awesome, stavely goodness coming forth to readers. Brian, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for hanging up. Guys, this was a blast. Thanks so much for having me.